0: There, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 68th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. And we thank everybody for tuning in last week to our interview with author Christy Alexander Hallberg. We were talking about her novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Great book. And we obviously talked in depth about Jimmy Page's life, his time in Led Zeppelin, some amazing sites around the UK that Christy was able to visit. Led Zeppelin Sacred Ground, if you will, and talked about his 1988 album Outrider a little bit, because that's the time in which it was set. It was our first release as part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is an amazing group of music podcasts, and we're really honored and excited to be a part of it. They've been very good to us, and we've got a lot of exciting things coming up. Now, at the end of last week's show, you might have heard me say that we were going to talk about Pink Floyd's Momentary Lapse of Reason, and we did record that. Because the thirtieth anniversary is coming up later this year, but we decided to put that in the vaults for a little while because we've got some more pressing anniversaries coming up here very soon. Speaking of which, this month, March twenty twenty two, is the fiftieth anniversary of Deep Purple's Machine Head. Those of you who don't know, Machine Head contains "Smoke on the Water." <clears throat> That's right, the riff that you are not allowed to play in guitar shops ever again because it's so ubiquitous, not only instantly recognizable and very heavy, but also fairly easy to play, and poor employees of guitar shops and instrument shops were sickened to death of that song, probably and Stairway to Heaven, throughout the 70s and into the 80s, and so they had to make it a rule. You're not allowed to play that. But you have to admit that after 50 years, this was kind of the height of Deep Purple, certainly the height of the Mark II lineup, featuring Richie Blackmore on guitar, Ian Gillen on vocals, Roger Glover on bass, Ian Pace on the drums, and the legendary John Lord. On the big organ and keyboards with classics like highway star and space trucking on there it's obviously always gonna be held in great esteem and in the heavy metal hard rock album pantheon but we're gonna review the whole album there's some really great stuff on it and kind of see where the band was it would not be too long before they evolved into the mark 3 lineup and we're gonna talk a little bit about how they've gone on over the years and my hopeful chance to see them here in London a little later this year. Now, as usual, we want you to subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts, be it Amazon, Google Play, Spotify, Apple, Good Pods, YouTube. We've got a lot of great stuff going on with some help from our friends at Pantheon Podcast, and we're really excited to share it with you here on the show coming up. But without further ado, let's dive into it. It's Deep Purple's machine head turning 50 here on The Wolf. Thanks for tuning in here with me, Jackson, and and doing Machine Head, turning 50 this month, which is kind of crazy. But then I guess there's never been a time in our lives as people who are almost 50 years old where there was no smoke on the water, right? I mean, smoke on the water is notoriously like an overplayed riff in the rock and roll pantheon. I mean, you know, it was famous in Wayne's World, like, you know, No Stairway to Heaven. But to go to the guitar shops in the 70s and 80s, they had signs on the wall that said, No Stairway to Heaven, No Smoke on the Water.
2: Right. It's one of those songs where I, Deep Purple, I've never heard of Deep Purple before. You put that on, oh, yeah, I know that song. Of course you do. Yeah, it's just in the lexicon of classic rock, hard rock, just listening to the radio. There was a, there was a skit, I think, you remember Kids in the Hall, where... there was a, there was a guy in the, and he had sold the soul of the devil or something about the devil was coming after him and he fought him off with the Holy triad. And it was just the beginning of smoke on the water. It's like, no, it's too powerful. (laughs) I can't, I can't deal with that. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is just, it's part of hard rock legend now along kind of with the highway star and space truck. And also if you're into that, but definitely that one transcended the band itself.
0: Well, no doubt about it. And you're right, Highway Star and Space Truckin' were big on American classic rock radio. Those are songs that we've heard since we were little kids, and and they are still in heavy rotation to this day. I guarantee if I go home to my favorite rock station, I will hear one of those over the course of a couple of days. But just the song Smoke on the Water and the story behind it, which we'll get into as far as being in On Lake Geneva and and getting ready to go and play the casino for a week or two, and then a Frank Zappa concert. There's a huge fire and it burns the casino down. That's just the stuff of rock and roll legend, and they they immortalize it with that song. But the riff, I mean, anyone can play it. You, You literally, my daughter was taking guitar lessons as a six year old, and because it was during the pandemic, she had to do it over Zoom and. That's one of the first songs she learned. And she learned the tablature by heart. So and and I'm not just talking about hitting it with a finger. She sings it 368 3698. Three, six, six, three. There are different ways you can play it, but If you're just going to play one string, that's smoke on the water, you know? And yeah, you you don't even have to learn to play. I remember being on like an eighth grade, not a field trip. It was like a a getaway for like a week or a long weekend or something like that, where they took us out to like the woods near a lake or something like that and had us bond as a class and do a bunch of stuff. There was a guitar laying around and and this guy, Andy, who had an older brother who's a musician, he kind of knew enough to do smoke on the water. And then I saw him doing it someone who loved music. And then I just picked up the guitar. I'm like, wow, I can do that too. Cool, man. You know, I was just a revelation. Wow. You can make music. It's not this black box that no one else can figure out. There is some stuff that the average person can do.
2: Right. And those are the best. When you, when you think to yourself, it, it, it's simple, but it's iconic. And you're right. If you, if you mess with it, you can play that and you feel like it just becomes much more accessible to you. And sometimes the the simple stuff is the best. Just keep it easy. And I saw Blackmore talking about how to play it. He's like, everybody messes it up because they strum it. And he's like, he what he's doing is he's picking two notes at a time. And that's what gives it that that really that dug in chugging sound
0: mm-hmm. on there. Yeah, no, you're you're right. Yeah. I mean, the simple way that my daughter learned it, Richie never played it that way. He didn't even practice <laughs> it that way. Right. But then Richie Has to give himself a lot of credit, apparently. Richie is one of the pricklier figures in rock and roll history, it would seem. It it seems he's not a very nice guy. He's awfully difficult to work with, is the word on the street. Right. And is
2: that part of what makes him great, is that he is this prickly... Like I'm the best. My ideas are the best. I mean, I guess he he fought a lot with with Lord about how what they were going to do, and mm-hmm. he wanted more straight-ahead rock, and Lord wanted more, you know, kind of over-the-top orchestral stuff. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe his personality is what made the band great. Because if he had just said, oh, you know, okay, but play whatever we want, then you wouldn't have got this record.
0: Yeah, and the guitar player and the keyboards do kind of have that that mid range they need to kind of fight over right cuz you got the <laughs> bass and the drums on the low end you've got the vocals on the high end so that mid range is occupied by one or the other, sometimes the other. And their interplay on this album, I think, is pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, there are are definitely times when you don't. Is that the organ or is that the guitar? They kind of go, they mirror each other and kind of blend sounds together.
0: And he would continue to do some of that once he was in Rainbow and and trade back and forth with whoever he might have been playing with in Rainbow, Richie Blackmore. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's so. and I got some real proggy vibes out of this record it's kind of hailed as a hard rock or a heavy metal favorite of all time you can't find a list of greatest hard rock or heavy metal albums of all time without machine head on it but having said that because of john lord's work on this there is a lot of progginess to it so maybe that's richie trying to be heavy and john lord trying to be proggy and together they make something that's fairly special and heavy
2: and that's what i was wondering because when we when we and i think this was my suggestion too just because it's it's such an iconic record but i thought to myself why did i not listen to this more like when i was younger and that's why because it's not really a hard rock record it's more prog like if you listen to it the the organ the hammond organ is really what's driving the bus that's the that's the signature sound on this record and right. i mean it's it's awesome but it's not acdc and it's not black sabbath and somebody was saying it might have even been no it wasn't birch it was somebody else some rock critic was talking about unlike led zeppelin and black sabbath and the other bands of the time deep purple was the band with the piano in it with the organ the other two didn't have that they had their own sound right and that's the other thing that's that's kind of i don't know it's kind of weird for me too because we only we only ever see these records in their entirety like by the time we listen to this it was. It had already been what? This is seventy one, so maybe 72. twenty years almost after it was made. Right. But they so they did in rock, right? Sure. Which and then they did Fireball, and Fireball was. I mean, it's it was it was out there, and so this was kind of like no, we need to refocus. We need to do this. We need to make more of a rock record. So when they put this out, this was this was a big deal for them because they were kind of like establishing themselves. This is what we're going to sound like, not. Not the over-the-top pieces for orchestras, and I mean, I think that Blackmore didn't hate playing that, but I think he didn't love it either. This was more of his his forte.
0: Yeah, let's let's get into a little bit about the state of the band at the time, okay. uh, because you know, in the late '60s, they had a big hit with Hush. Hush, mm-hmm. hush, you know, it was big all over the world. But that singer wasn't doing it for Blackmore. And, and the bass player wasn't holding up his end of the bargain either. So he already had Ian Pace on the drums. He already had John Lord on the keyboards. Like, those guys are good, but I need something else And so then he found Ian Gillen and Roger Glover, who were kind of, they came as a package deal, which is an amazing upgrade. And Roger Glover is key to the sound of Deep Purple as a songwriter, as a producer, not to mention the voice of Ian Gillen. So that made what they called the classic Mark II lineup. Mm -hmm. with Richie, Ian Pace, Ian Gillen, John Lord, and Roger Glover. And they made these these classic records in the very early 70s, from, what, 1970 or so to 1974-ish, something like that. And then, of course, the Mark III lineup came after when Ian and Roger left, and then they brought in Glenn Hughes, the voice of rock, on bass and on some lead vocals— and the legendary David Coverdale to replace Ian Gillen. And they had some some success after that. We'll talk about that. So this was the kind of, this was the Mark II lineup at its height, right? Mm-hmm. But like you say, they had been writing on the road, and then they would go in the studio to, to break into In-Rock or to break into Fireball. And they really wanted a chance to capture their live sound better because it wasn't, they weren't, Capturing in the studio what they were doing live, which is a complaint we hear from a lot of bands,
2: right? And I think that they were. This band was really built to play live. That's what they wanted to do. They made these records in order to, in order to play them live. It it seems like there weren't a whole lot of overdubs. They wanted to go in there and record it all together and make it sound like you were listening to a live recording. Obviously, they did some studio magic. It's not a live record, but just to have that vibe. And the other thing that I was looking at also is the fact that it's referred to as not a I don't know a traditional band. Let's put it that way. Like the Beatles, they met in school, you know, the Who they met in school, Genesis. They're all like, you know, their kids together, they grow up. This is a professional band with professional musicians. And these Dudes can hammer everything. Can play, yeah, absolutely. And I was listening to a certain radio program where they started to have a very in depth argument slash discussion of who is the best rock drummer on the face of the earth. Is it Neil from Rush or is it John Bonzo Bonham? Back and forth, back and forth. This person says this, this person says that. Okay, let's get somebody, let's get an expert on the phone. Here's Lars Ulrich on the phone. Lars, who is the best drummer, Neil or Bonzo? Ian Pace from Deep Purple. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think he is I don't want to say underrated because I think he I think he is is held in super high regard by professionals who know what they're talking about because he has been described as making stuff that's extremely hard look very easy. And with him and Glover on the bass, it just comes together in a package. I mean, these guys are just super tight on this record, and you can hear it.
0: Yeah, you can hear it. Yeah, it's awesome. I I think he's underrated in America. I I don't think in Europe or in the U.K., I think okay. Deep Purple is held in very high esteem, and the fact that it took them 20 or 25 years or something ridiculous to finally get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame it was insulting. Now, now, part of that is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame doesn't care for hard rock and heavy metal that much, but also there's also the issue of who from the band do you put in? Because it's <clears throat> not like everybody who was ever in the band gets into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but who do you put in and who do you leave out? And they're leaving out Steve Morse, who's basically been in the band thirty years and is an incredible guitar player, took over for Richie in about nineteen ninety three or four, after Joe Satriani had a small stint in there once once Richie left. But you know they, they put in Glenn Hughes. They put in David Coverdale. Did they put in Tommy Bolin, who came in for the Mark IV lineup for one album after Richie left? No, they didn't, you know. But the guy who sang Hush, who no one even knows if he's alive or dead, like no one on the planet knows where he is, he got in. So it's... It's all very political and it's a bunch of nonsense and it's controlled by people like David Geffen and Jan Wenner who, who, you know, oh, that's not what I like, you know. Well, who <laughs> cares? Everyone else in the whole world likes it. It's wrong with you.
2: And, and I think that's that's kind of one of the problems, especially in the United States with this band is that – it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to think of who was in there. Like Zeppelin, there were only ever four guys. The Beatles, there right. were only ever four guys. This was a they mixed and matched a lot of people. There were several different lineups. And so that and the other thing is too they're while they're held in high regard with people who enjoy this music. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ask somebody who didn't know, like you've heard of Deep Purple. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard of that band before. Well, who was in it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe you could pick out Richie Blackmore, but nobody really else stands out as far as it was more of a, it was more of a cohesive band together than a group of individual stars.
0: Yeah. And that's fair. And and no one really became, a huge solo artist out of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Blackmore went on to do Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, and Rainbow had some hits and kind of helped propel Ronnie James Dio in his career in a big way. Yeah, and the singer is usually, especially in America, the singer is the one who goes on to fame and fortune, maybe the guitar player, maybe. But Ian Gillen never really had a big solo career Glenn Hughes has been in a ton of different bands, including a small stint in Black Sabbath, which was supposed to be a Tony mm-hmm. Iommi solo record, Seven Star. And Ian Gillen, of course, made the Born Again record in Black Sabbath, which is big among hardcore fans, but did nothing in 1983 during the heart of like MTV surging and synth <laughs> pop and New Wave and Duran Duran. That just didn't fit. So, yeah, they, they never really broke up to do their own thing. And now Deep Purple's been ongoing they took a break from the late 70s into the 80s. They got back together with Richie Blackmore. And then eventually Richie left and, like, thank God, now we get somebody who's easy to work with. Satriani was in there for a while, which I think was just kind of a, he's like a pinch hitter for a while, yeah. uh, until they got Steve Morris, uh, who is an amazing guitar player and has been with them for basically three decades now, longer than Richie was ever in the band.
2: Right. But again, it's, it's, it's something that has gone through so many changes that it's it's hard to it's hard to really put a, a lineup and a face together. But I think this, if you could do that, this is the Mark II is the the classic, definitely the, the one that. I mean, you're talking about only one thing can go in the Hall of Fame. This should have been in. This would this, be this lineup. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and no offense to Coverdale or Glenn Hughes, love Glenn Hughes, you know, and yeah, they're great and they deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Absolutely. But yeah, if, if you could only take one lineup, the Mark II lineup is it, and and a big reason is because of this record machine head,
2: right, right. Which I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a bad track on here. It's it's not. They're not all the same, and there's only I think there's only seven songs on here. Yeah, That's right. But, I mean they they come out they come out driving, no pun intended, right from the beginning. <laughs> maybe a little. And <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, right off the bat with Highway Star. I mean, it's just you want to start a record off. It's they're just dropping you out of the or dropping you onto the roller coaster tracks right off the bat.
0: Yeah, man. There's frantic bass from Roger Glover to yeah. start this track, and John Lord on that organ is powerful, man. It, mm-hmm. it is a mm-hmm. great sound, and it's not—it's it, not classical. A little bit it is, but it's—it's it's heavy. It's—it's it's, it's yeah. more heavy metal than two crunching guitars would be.
2: And it just—it didn't sound like anything too, or anything else like that. Like the the organ was. It was always kind of, I think, used for more, like, more like, cla- like, prog rock is always more like classical music. Right. And I think that's what it had been used for before. So now he was, I think he was using it through, uh, he was recording it through Marshall Stacks, like a guitar, even though, like, that. I guess, I don't think that had really ever been done before, because he wanted more of a of a raw, crunchy sound
0: to it. Well, he got it, you know, and his his yeah. organ work in that middle eight, or the bridge, whatever you want to call it, is is great and you know look americans love their driving songs we love we are the inventors of muscle cars and we've got all these big highways and dirt roads and, and we love a good driving song and highway star is it and it may have never been a top 40 hit or anything like that but it has been a staple of am radio and now fm aor classic rock for decades and it's it's huge in America.
2: Yeah, and and even though when you listen to the lyrics, it, they're kind of you know they're kind of silly. Yeah, but I think it's it's the it's the spirit and it's the music that really pushes this one over the edge. I mean, cars, girls—I mean, that's all rock and roll staples—and just that the whole thing coming together, like it, like even even the bass and the guitar. If you listen to what they're doing, and this is throughout the whole record. They're kind of, they do exactly what they need to, to fit into the song and make it, add to it without being distracting.
1: I agree
0: with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What I didn't know is we did research for this, is that they, they're they on a bus, I guess, to a gig in Portsmouth here in the UK. And some journo asked them you know, how does he write songs? Hey, Richie, how do you write songs? And he goes like this. And he started working out the riff to Highway Star. And then Ian started to drop some like highway or like road lyrics on it, right? Like right then in the bus. And then during soundcheck, the rest of the band kind of put together the arrangement for the song. And then that night at the gig in Portsmouth in 1971, they debuted Highway Star. We have just written it like that day.
2: Well, I mean, that's, I think that's coming from being professional musicians that you can do that, but that's the story. I heard the same story, but I thought it was the journalist asked him, Hey, how do you write a song? And he kind of just very dismissively looked out the window and just started strumming like this, you know, like, how dare you ask me how I do this? Sounds about but right. But yeah, but it was one of the, yeah, it was one of those things like he was trying to be a jerk, but yeah, I think they were like, Hey, wait a minute. That's pretty good. We can use that. Don't throw that away.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Chris from My Rock and Roll Heaven, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast.
0: But hey, it's a classic. It's rock and roll, classic, mm-hmm. staple of classic rock. And it's fun, and when you when you hear it coming on, when it's building up at the beginning. And, His voice is building, and it's like, like yeah. oh, here we're in for it now, man. Here we go, you know. Oh, yeah. and great, That's one of those...
2: Yeah, if you hear it in the car, all of a sudden, you know, hey, well, how am I going ninety five? All of a sudden, okay, in close, slow down, slow down. It's just, it's just a good, it's just a great driving song,
0: and it's just fun to listen to. I wonder if you could use that as excuse, like officer pulls you over. You know how fast you're going? Like, no, officer, look, I'm sorry. I was doing the speed limit. And then Highway Star came on, man. What do you want me to do? He's like, oh, all right. Well, be careful. You're next right.
2: You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> such and such. I'm ripping this ticket up. Man. Yeah.
0: So then it goes into the next song. It's a little bit of a change of pace called Maybe I'm a Leo. It's got, I would call this like a heavy metal
1: funk song.
2: Yes, it is funky. And it, But it's nice because... You got again. You got to have a change of pace. You can't. You were going so frantically on that first one. You need to slow it down. Mm-hmm. But they still. You still have that. Again, if you've never heard this heard this track before, and you kind of played it, and you're like, "Well, that sounds a lot like Deep Purple because it has that it has that signature organ sound on it from the beginning." But yeah. I, I like it and I like the fact that they do slow it down and give you a a chance to kind of rest here for a minute even though it's not it's still it's still heavy it's yeah. just
0: slower it's just slower yeah yeah and it's, it's got a lot of plodding bass and yeah. a lot of thumping from Roger Glover on this one Richie doesn't really stand out his solo in the middle is not that great to me there's kind of a fade out that has some better guitar work from him but the actual solo is is definitely not his best. Uh, mm-hmm. if you ask me. But I guess Glover wrote this riff after listening to some John Lennon, so that, that shows you just how important the Beatles still were, even though at that point they had broken up and were now solo artists. Listening to the individual Beatles now was still just important for rock and roll fans and for musicians who were like, all right, well, how do we kick it up a notch? What's... You know, how are we going to be better? What's out there that we listen to? It's it's going to be solo Beatles, if not the actual Beatles anymore.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, to this day, they're still influencing people, even though, yeah, it had been that long. They still had their fingerprints all over this. I like the way that the guitar goes, the guitar solo at the beginning goes into the organ solo. It's like a handoff. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, yeah, the, the play back and forth between them. And I, yeah, I don't, I guess that was really never going to work because if you're going to be a... If you're going to be a guitar god, it has to be all about you. It can't be, oh, well, you know, we also have the organ there. And, and yeah, it, it, there's really no room for more than one giant ego in a band.
0: Well, and it just occupies the same space sonically. And you hear our right. one, of, one of our favorite bands, Alex Lifeson and Rush, talking about how in the 80s, he had a hard time finding his place because Getty was doing all that keyboard work that, mm. that kind of occupied the space that he was supposed to be in. So he's like, now what do I do, right? And for Richie, it's easy. It's like, I go, you sit down. You know, that's kind of the way he thinks, <laughs> right? What I learned that I thought was interesting was they did this at the BBC, like an in concert. They did like a Deep Purple in concert where they basically played most all of this album. But that was really the only time they played maybe Leo in the 70s. Now, once Joe Satriani came in when Richie left, you know, they, they started to do it again because people want to hear stuff from this incredible album. And it's not just the three big ones because they know them all so well. So... You know, Richie's like, eh, we're not going to play that one. After he's gone, the catalog opens up and people are like, yes, yeah, we get to hear these songs finally.
2: Yeah, this is definitely one of those records they could play start to finish in concert and people would love it.
0: And see now, I've had tickets to see Deep Purple at the O2 with Blue Oyster Cult opening for them. I've had these tickets for two years now. And of course, it keeps getting postponed due to COVID, postponed due to COVID. <laughs> They've postponed it till October of this year. I don't know if I'm going to be here in October of this year, but I w- maybe I'd have to come back if, uh, if I if think I'm, you would have to. Yeah, I, if I if really they, don't want to miss that show. Do it absolutely. Not to mention now that it's 50, maybe they're going to play the whole thing in its entirety. I mean, yes was supposed to play Relayer in its entirety two years ago. It's been canceled and canceled. Now they're going to play this year, but this year just happens to be the 50th anniversary of Close to the Edge. So instead of doing Relayer, they're going to do Close to the Edge. Now, for me, that's awesome because I love Close to the Edge. And Relayer's good. Only one, only album to feature Patrick Moraz on keyboards. It's kind of like Rick was out of the band and then he came back afterwards for a while. But it's, it's a little more esoteric, whereas Close to the Edge is a huge one. So to the big Yes fans who've already seen them do Close to the Edge in their entirety and wanted one chance to see Relayer in its entirety – I'm sorry for you guys, but for me, it's a bonus.
2: <laughs>
0: but, see, that's my point. They could do Machine Head in its entirety on its 50th anniversary. They could do that this year if they it's wanted 22. to. So, Yeah,
2: and, I mean, it's only seven songs long, so, I mean, you could do that and other stuff, you know, other hits, and not have people be disappointed.
0: Yeah, and you say that, but then, like, I look at Made in Japan, their live album that came out after this, and, you know, they can do Smoke on the Water for for 15 or 20 minutes and, and they, they can, you <laughs> know, know they, they can do, you know, highway star or space trucking for like 20, 25 minutes. It's pretty crazy. So, uh, yeah, but you're right. Yeah. It wouldn't just be that stuff. So who knows? We'll see. Moving on to the third track pictures of home. Right. What'd you think about this one?
2: Well, I, here's what I think. I am not an entertainment lawyer. However, the beginning of this, the drum intro, is the same as "Over the Mountain" from Ozzy osborne that he would do in 1982's "Tire of a Madman." I'm like, you ripped that off one hundred percent.
0: Interesting.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, I didn't. Think so anyway, that. I mean,
2: it, it's killer. I mean, it's fantastic. It's a great way to. It's a great way to showcase the drums, mm-hmm. uh, which to this point, I mean, they, they've been there, but they haven't really been center stage. It's it's a cool one. We come from you know kind of this funky thing to another hard driving sweeping epic of a song. I know they were a little bit they were a little bit apprehensive about Gillian singing about eagles and snow, <laughs> but it, it, but it works. It
0: really works. Well, he is singing a little more softly. I would say even more humanly instead of that big shout, that scream that he does on so many yeah. things. And, and Richie's much better on this one than he was on, on the previous one. But interestingly enough. Uh, most of the band thought it was pretty commercial sounding and, and thought, yeah, we could make this into a single, but Blackmore refused to play it. He just did yes. not like it. And he's like, Nope, I'm not playing <laughs> this one. Nope, <laughs> not doing it. And so it's like, uh, okay, I guess, I mean, uh, if Richie won't play it, I guess we're not going to play it. But it just seems weird that someone would, would do that. You know, I mean, look at, at this point, all tracks are written by Deep Purple. They all get equal share of it. Right. Even though someone might come up with the riff or someone might come up with this or that. They all kind of get credit for it. But Richie did not like it. And it's another one that once Satriani came in and then Steve Morris. They could put back in the set list, and people were psyched to have heard it. So uh,
2: yeah, and this this one's cool because it's got it's more like he like I said he's talking about eagles and snow, and you kind of think about mountains. It really sounds like he's kind of soaring in the vocals. There's a really cool bass solo breakdown in there. Oh yeah, I mean again. The bass has been there the whole time, but here's here's a nice chance to kind of put it set, uh, front and center. And then there was some song about, oh, there's not some song, there was some deal about how Blackmore listened to like Bulgarian shortwave radio or something like that. And he he was always listening to something strange and he got the, the riff from it or something like that. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's a cool story about how, as a musician, like, where do you get these things from? Where do you get inspiration from? Where do you, do, I mean, are you trying to think think of something like, man, I need to write a song today. Okay. One, two, three, go. Or are you just going through life and something hits you and say, and you say, oh, I like that a lot. That'll work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you can't just go from the exact, oh, I'll just listen to rock radio all day and see what the other people are going. No, you got to find some esoteric stuff and you know, stuff that mm-hmm. not everyone hears. You can't be different if you listen to the same thing everybody else is. So it's cool to get different vibes and different ideas from different cultures. Absolutely. But, like, with John Lore jamming out on the end with Roger, like you said, they're all that killer Mm. bass on it. This is very proggy to me, especially the end of it. Yes. This is a very proggy song.
2: Right, where where it, like, stops for a second. Yeah. And then it kind of just, it kind of wanders, not wanders, but it kind of, there's a weird, it doesn't sound like it goes, but it does in the song. They stop, and then it goes right back into the guitar solo. Yeah, definitely, it fits, but it's not the same thing. And
0: you wonder, As the rest of the tracks. You wonder why Richie didn't like it. Was it that break that he didn't like? He's like, why are we stopping and then starting up again? I don't know. Did he not get enough of his own stuff in on the song? I'm not Maybe. sure.
2: Yeah, and, and that's the... I like when they say that the songs are written by everybody, because I really believe that if you're in a band, everyone is coming up with something. I have a hard time believing that there is anybody that just shows up and plays what they're supposed to. But on the other hand, it's nice when you see the breakdown because then it's like, okay, I, I can hear the difference between a song written by this person mm-hmm. and this person or this combination, like, you know, it's going to be different. So yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe that was the deal. He had other stuff that he wanted in here. He wanted the song to go a different way and, he he was outvoted and so this was his way of, you know, putting his foot down and saying, I'm not
0: doing this. I guess so. Yeah. But the next song, which would be the last song on side one of the LP of the set, never before, I gotta tell you I like this one. And I like Ian Ian's voice on this one. It's not quite as heavy as some of the other songs on the album. And it was the first single they released on the off the album. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and apparently it didn't do so well at the beginning. And and Blackmore was saying something about how it's interesting, the record company, they use we and you. When you're doing well, it's we. We have a great, the, the you know, we're climbing up the charts. We're doing this. But when you're doing bad, it's, you have to find the sound and you have to do these other things. Oh, okay. I see how your
0: single works. failed the chart in the US. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Whereas we're burning up the charts in Belgium or whatever. Yeah, this this sounds like a it sounds like a like a 70s funk song. Like it like, but they make it like I wrote down hard funk question mark. Like, mm-hmm. is that a thing? I don't know. But yeah, it's it's got a it's got more of a funky vibe. It's, it's nice because here's another change of pace after coming off of this, like, you know, sweeping epic of uh, Pictures of Home. They kind of de- change gears again to reset you a little bit.
0: Yeah, and it is the shortest song on the record. I mean, it's the only one that isn't at least four minutes long. So that makes it more radio friendly, kind of automatically. It has a nice slowdown in the bridge there um, yeah. that I like. And it, too, is like, just like Maybe I'm a Leo. It was only played once at that BBC in concert performance, you know, so, which again is bizarre. It's your single and you only play it once. That doesn't make any sense. Now I know it barely charted, got to like 35 in the UK and did not chart in the US. I understand, but sometimes the charts are wrong. Sometimes the DJs are not playing the songs they should. Right? Maybe people don't like it as much, but maybe not enough have heard it. I don't know, but to me, it's a really good song. And being that it was the first single they did have a B side on it, When a Blind Man Cries, mm. which I had never heard before. And it's it's a blues track, you know, basically. It it, it wouldn't have necessarily fit on this album very well. So it it, it makes a good B side from the era, but would, wouldn't be a good fit for the other seven songs on this record, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think they really like that song, but again, you're right. Like it just doesn't go. It would have been a weird add-on, or a, you know, either you put it at the end, and why did you do that? Or you kind of put it in the middle, and it's it kind of breaks the vibe that you've got there. So yeah, it is a really cool B-side, and that's that's we've talked about this before. That's the great thing when you discover that extra song you haven't heard. And, right? Hey, well, how come you know how come I never heard this before? Well, they kind of buried it a little
0: bit. Yeah, and I love I'm I'm a sucker for B-sides. The band mm-hmm. who's supposed to open. For Deep Purple, famous song on Burning For You, there's time to play B sides. When you've got the time to play B sides, you've got time in your life. And it's wonderful. (laughs) It's wonderful time, folks. Listen to the B-sides. Speaking of which, Jackson, I just picked up the two-disc Iron Maiden Best of the B-sides, which is not the easiest to find.
2: Oh, Very okay. hard to
0: find new. I had to buy it used, but it was in good shape, so I did it. Def- it doesn't have every single B-side they ever did, but it's it's got a lot of them, and, uh, and we'll listen to it once you're over here. Cool.
1: <laughs> this is Neil from Deflight Pod, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London,
2: rock podcast.
0: Alright, so now we're flipping the tape, or we're flipping the disc, the LP, and first song on the second side, 368, 3698, 36863, The Legendary. Smoke on the water.
2: And I had heard the tale of this thing, mm-hmm. but I guess it's it's one of those deals where it's like you didn't have to do anything to this. like You're just telling the story of exactly what happened, and it's it's insane. So you, you get to the – you're going to play the casino. You've got the Rolling Stones uh, mobile studio ready to go, which it makes another appearance. That's right. It's, it, I guess that thing was way ahead of its time because everybody used it. Everybody. They show up. Zappa's playing that night so they say, well okay, well I mean that's cool. We'll just go see Frank Zappa play and some idiot shoots off Roman candles in the place and burns the thing down and they just again it's just like you' like there's no way you made that up this is a fantasy. No, it really happened exactly really happened that way. It. yeah it's like what's the what's the uh, what's the Leonard Skinner song that smell? Yeah. How did you how did you come up with that? Well, I got really drunk and crashed my car into a tree. All right. Yep. There you go.
0: Exactly what happened. Yeah. Somehow Gary Rossington is the only living member of the original Leonard Skinner band. Even though he crashed his cars all the damn time, man. It's unbelievable. But yeah, no. Okay, so the story is they wanted... They were sick of being on the road trying to record at the same time. So, like, we're going to kind of set up shop somewhere. We need to do it out of England because, for tax purposes, we need to be out of the country. So they set up shop on Lake Geneva. There's a casino there. And they were going to have—I don't know—it was a week or two week. They were going to have a you know a residency there, and then they were going to be able to uh, record there. And Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention had the last show before Deep Purple was going to take it over. So yes, somebody fires a flare or whatever up, in, up into the ceiling. It all starts to burn. Everybody gets out of there, but Claude knobs is there, and he's the one who created the Montreux Festival. And he was helping them, you know, get these gigs settled out. But, yeah, there were some kids, like, trapped in the basement until Claude went down there and got them and got them out. Now, everybody got out. Nobody died in the fire, which is the good news. But you could hear him. You talk about you hear him singing Frank Zappa and the Mamas and, you know, Claude, or Funky Claude got some kids out from. They're literally singing about exactly <laughs> what happened, you know. <laughs> You know, and it's so like, okay, well, now we got to find someplace else to go. So they went someplace else, and the neighbors were complaining about the noise. So finally they found the the Grand Hotel and could put a bunch of mattresses and stuff up around there so they could actually record it. But it was like, because they had to crawl through some space or whatever to go back into the mobile to hear the playback, mm. they was like, that's too much of a hassle. We're just going to play this until we get it right, to the way we like it. And then they had, like, right. closed-caption TV so they could talk to Martin Birch Legendary producer, who again we've talked about on this show a lot, uh, so they could talk a little bit. But it's like, no, nah, I'm not going back in there to listen. I'm not crawling through a bunch of stuff. Let's just, we'll play it. I like that one. Keep that one, you know. So yeah,
2: that's, that's what they said. They had to come out of the room, go onto the balcony, jump over to another balcony, crawl through a window, down a hallway, flight of stairs to go to the mobile thing for Barton Burst to turn around and say, "Play it again." <sighs> okay, so yeah, they just they just ended up like screwing like I mean, I saw pictures of it, and it was like. They had the drums kind of like pushed into a corner because they liked the way that that sound. And I think that they, they wanted to do as much stuff, and this was Birch too, in one take or in a continuous take, not mm-hmm. having to, to dub things in because that's that's the sound they were looking for. And I think it only took them like three weeks to make this record, which is crazy when you think about there are bands that take years and years of just you know tracking and retracking so it it definitely adds to the kind of the even though it's not a live record like we were saying before it does have live characteristics to it
0: and you've got to capture the sound now you've got to capture the mood now you've got to capture where you are now on the sound you can drag anything out for years and years and years if you want to and you'll end up with something like Chinese democracy which is like now there's no right cohesive no coherence to it nobody wants it it's like you know you have different people from different times doing all sorts of different stuff now, there's something to be said for and even if it's a few months just go one place for a few months get it done and then yeah you get out and tour on it and, and make it better live and then you've got inspiration to go do your next thing you know back in the day that wasn't I mean you talk about the Beatles would record an album in a week or something like that and it would be rubber soul or something crazy like that. It's like how, how do they record that in a week you know it's that's impossible, you know, but I mean, you think Black Sabbath's first album took more than like four days to make? You're crazy. No. And it's yeah, awesome. Just,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: And and I think too, if you've got a band like this where you've got big time musicians, it, it works better because they kind of groove with each other. Like, especially if you're playing the bass, you know, you kind of just slide in there and do and fill in the space that's open and i know that i think if you recorded that by itself you just wouldn't have gotten the same thing
0: well and there's also they know you're professional like it's time to get to work we've got visas to be in switzerland they don't last forever mm-hmm. we, we got to get in here get to work and, and get out you know so they did it they did it well and uh, smoke on the water i mean I, don't know, I remember hearing this ever since i was a little kid you know uh, the story is legend but the And the riff is, is of course, legendary, but just to hear it all kind of come together, it, it never really gets old, you know what I mean?
2: Well, and, and I think the more that you listen to it, the more you can pick stuff out. Like, yes, the riff hits you at the beginning. Okay, we got that. But then when the bass comes, when they go into the song after the, the, I think he does it twice, the the bass comes up, that boom, 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 and it just starts to drive the song. Like, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool... It fits in, and it's almost like a separate piece, but it, it kind of introduces you to the actual song itself, and not just the riff at the beginning.
0: Yeah, everybody's doing their part to make it killer, right? Yes, it's Richie's got the famous riff, but then Pace right. comes in, you know, on the sticks. Yeah. Roger comes in and does his thing, you know. Lord is is putting. The, I mean, it's it's cohesive. It all sounds like it all fits together really well. But it's like everybody kind of comes in individually along the way to eventually create this rock masterpiece, really. Yeah.
2: And if you listen to it, like you don't – I've listened to it a ton of times and you don't really get the whole – if you don't know the story, you might not realize that they're telling you a story. But, you know, like what are they talking about? Smoke on the water and fire. Ooh, it's so – you know, what do they mean by that? I mean the building was on yeah. fire. I'm on Lake I-
0: Geneva across from the casino and I see the smoke <laughs> billowing out over the water. That's <laughs> what it is, okay? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about taking a bong hit? No, idiot. <laughs> I'm talking yeah. about something I watched happen. I was supposed <laughs> to be there the next day, but now it's burnt to the ground. <laughs> they didn't want to release smoke on the water as a single. They didn't hear it as a single. Like, nah, that, that's not going to make it. That 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 won't work. And then US DJs are just playing the heck out of it because it's catchy. You know, mm, 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 mm. so then. They were pressured, basically, to release it as a single. And yeah, it went into, like, the top five in America, which is a really big deal, right? It helped them sell more than two million records back in the day. So, yeah, and I think it was backed with the live version of it. Like, they, they didn't even say, no, nah, we we're don't. we not even putting enough track on there. We'll just give the same thing only live. Good move, because I think that sold over a million copies, maybe a couple million worldwide, just the single. So... The band doesn't always know what's best for them. That's a fact.
2: Yeah, that is. I do love stories like that because you'd think, and again, we're looking at it through, you know, the the lens of history. You think, yeah, that's a no brainer. Of course, this would be a huge record. It's exactly what people in America were looking for, especially at this time. You know, now we're into Led Zeppelin. Uh, you want that iconic guitar riff Mm -hmm. and this is it
0: this is it you know it's kind of obvious but you know it's hard for us to say that because we're not even as old as this record is by the time we heard it it was obviously a classic right so it's hard for us to say well how could they not know how good this is we've always gone through records and said well, this song's so much better than, than the single. Why didn't they release this as a single? Look, that just kind of works out that way sometimes. It's just good that somebody found it in America. Somebody pushed it and eventually realized, all right, well, if we can make money off a, of- of this single that we don't like, fine, you know, we'll put yeah. it out there, I guess, you know. And then, whoo, it puts them in the stratosphere, gives them a lot of leeway, lets them have a 50-plus year career. Right,
2: and then it sets you up for huge tours in the United States, too, because everybody wants to hear the, the big hit single.
0: That's right, that's right. One big hit single can make you a lot of money in the USA, that's mm-hmm. for sure. All right, well, killer way to start off the second the second side, and then you get into this song "Lazy," which is mm-hmm. not a lazy song. I mean, over seven minutes, it's the longest song on the record, uh, and it's it's kind of a big instrumental. I mean, the vocals don't even come in till more than halfway through the song.
2: Yeah, I think. I think you would get fooled into thinking it wasn't instrumental. And then the vote, oh, okay, I guess we're going to sing in this one. But it almost—it sounds like a church organ at the beginning.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of noodling with with Richie and some interplay with John Lord. There's a lot of back and forth. It seems like this is kind of a, it's been set aside as a showcase to let the Mm. virtuosos in the band kind of show off a little
2: bit. Yeah, I had a note here that it sounds, I listened to this a couple times, it sounds like the guys in a church, right? It's the church organist. But he's out there by himself, and he's kind of, you know, just testing the equipment, making sure it works. And there's nobody watching, so I'm gonna get a little freaky here with it. And you walk in on Oh, sorry, I'm just playing the regular stuff. That's what it sounds like to me because it it kind of starts off serious and then gets funky and then the rest of the stuff come in and it's it's like it's there's a blues kind of riff to it there's the bass is walking around underneath and everybody is just it just sounds to me like everybody's on point on this thing like everybody's just they're locked in they've got their groove going it all comes together and then yeah all of a sudden the vocals come in like oh wait a minute i thought this was okay i thought it was an instrumental could have been yeah Yeah, and uh, then there's a harmonica solo, which I had not heard before on this record. That's a cool add-on.
0: Yeah, Ian. Pay- I, I'm sorry, Ian Gillan is actually a pretty good harp player, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, and you think, okay, well, there's got to be a time where Ian gets to take a break, right? Because it's hard to sing, especially the way he sings. So, yeah. finish the last song. He gets to go off for a minute. Then they do three and a half, four minutes of this song before he needs to come in. To add the vocals, you know, and the lyrics aren't incredible. There aren't that many to it, really. But it's a great one. I mean, I guarantee you big, hardcore, deep purple fans love this one.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely an, a deep album cut, but something that you can listen to and, and appreciate. And it definitely, it adds to the, the layers on this record.
0: And to do it live, I bet you've got so much leeway to be able to go in so many different directions. You have stretched this out to 15 20 minutes if you really wanted to and really right. you, you want to say okay Richie's going to go off stage for 4 minutes and really let John <laughs> Lord just yeah. you know do his thing you could do that you know so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely all right and then we come to the end of the record Space Truckin I got to tell you I have always loved this song and a lot of people don't cuz it's kind of silly I mean it's space truckin what are you even talking about right but this is a heavy heavy song and when he's screaming it at the end, <clears throat> yeah, yeah! You know, oh my God, it's so good to me. I love it, man. It's, it's classic, classic, classic rock and roll. And I, I don't know, I've I, I just always loved this song. Maybe some of it is nonsensical as far as some of the lyrics go, but I think the whole band just jams out so so well on this, and they build it up at the end with the big drum and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 killer. It's fun. Well,
2: I don't, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about because it makes total sense. It's like trucking, <laughs> but in space. <laughs> right. All oh, right. Yeah. yeah, I think they did get, get in a little bit of trouble because the lyrics were seen as a little bit flippant. Like, okay, whatever. This is a weird one because it starts off slow,
1: mm-hmm. but
2: then it just it like like smoke on the water. It comes at you with that with the riff. Right. right. This one starts. You know, it and then it builds up, but yeah, and then it's just kind of frantic at the end. And you're right; he's screaming. You know, space trucking, and you know, is it is it about being on the road and just kind of just being silly, maybe too, with the lyrics? You know, having a good time. And then there was there was something about he's talking about Borealis. You know, being out in space, Borealis. Yeah. And then there was a was there a person, Boring Alice, that everybody knew? I don't know. Okay, maybe. Right. <laughs> Maybe an inside joke with the band, but yeah. And a great way to, to end the record too. This is not a, you know, we've talked about records that end with like throwaway tracks where it's like, Oh, you know, uh, yeah. 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 We need one more to put, okay. Take this one. This is, this is an awesome way that it was a great way to start the record, a great way to end the record now with this one, you know, it, it, it just kind of, it, doesn't fade out, but it kind of, you know, it kind of just leaves you trailing at the end.
0: No, yeah, it's, it's great, and, and they used to close the show with this back in the day, and then even when Ian and Roger left for the Mark III lineup with Glenn and David Coverdale, they continue to close the show with mm-hmm. space trucking, and they would stretch it out sometimes for 20 or 25 minutes <laughs> and there's a there's a video of them in 1974 at the California Jam where this goes on forever it's it's like 25 minutes it's crazy and Richie comes out there and breaks his guitar and swings it around and throws it in the audience then he goes back and gets another guitar he lights one of his marshall stacks on fire it was a huge fire which they knew he was going to do because they're ready to put it out right there. And then he's like playing the guitar with his foot, with his like tennis shoe. And I'm like, what is he even doing? Now you're just being a rock star for the sake of being a rock star. You know, it's, it's kind of who like, but it, I don't know. I'm sure I would have gone. I lost my mind at the time. Like, would you look at that? They're blowing it up. He's playing with his foot. Ah, looking at it now, it's like, is it just because he didn't have anything else to play? He just didn't want to play any other songs. It's, it's a little silly to me now. It's very rock star over the top legendary stuff, but it's also kind of like, you're kind of being a clown, but hey, rock and roll, baby.
2: <laughs> right. And I wonder too, like, you know, you say it's at the, at the uh, California jam. I wonder if you've thought, well, you know, we've got all these bands. Cause those things used to be huge. Like if you look at the, at the lineups There were, you know, just band after band of these giant acts back then. Did you have to say, okay, well, you know, you're going to remember this, so what else can we do? I don't know, light the stack on fire. Cool, you know, smash the guitar up. I don't know. Maybe it was just showmanship to distinguish yourself in the field of
0: bands. And were they, I mean, was there anyone on after them? Because if there were, then they're like, oh, yeah, you want to follow us? Right. Follow this. Yeah. (laughs) Three to four hundred thousand fans um, wow! Yeah, and Emerson Lake and Palmer were coming after them. So, okay, here it goes. It was Rare Earth, then Earth, Wind and Fire, then the Eagles, Seals and Crofts, who seem a little out of place. was California, Black Oak, Arkansas, Black Sabbath. <laughs> Then Deep Purple, and then Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, uh, emceed by the world-famous Don Imus. Oh, the I-Man. So, uh, yeah, so 250,000 tickets sold, but three or 400,000 people showed up, so that was probably it, like... We're heavier than Black Sabbath, and we're way better than ELP. Let me just show you.
2: Right. Uh, right. So that
0: probably had something and, to do with it if I know Richie. Yeah,
2: and who knows too? Maybe it's like you know what? I close the show. Okay, I am not. Well, then watch what happens. Yeah. Could you, but can you imagine that too? Like, how am I not hearing that? Tons, hundreds of people were killed at that thing, just trampled to death. You had two hundred and fifty thousand tickets, but four hundred thousand people showed up. I mean, that's can't you can't keep track of all those people. Yeah. And to hear that. That many bands. I mean, even today, when you've got festival kind of deals, there's always a couple that you're like, I guess, you know, you need to fill some time. But there's no – well, maybe Seals and Croft. But right. Right, everybody else had a pretty killer lineup. That was that a would be a weird mood changer, huh? We're going from Seals and Croft to Black Sabbath. Yeah. Um, Okay. Could you see them hanging out backstage together?
0: No, I cannot. But then I can't see <laughs> – I can't see Richie Blackmore hanging out with Black Sabbath either. He's like, I don't want to see Tony Iommi. I'm better than him. You know? Right, yeah. Richie's just very difficult person and not seem like a really unhappy guy. You don't really have footage of, of him smiling either on stage or in interviews or ever, you know? I mean, I know it's you got to be a rock star and look cool and you don't smile into the camera, but... I mean, I've, I've seen everybody else at some point with a smile on their face doing something, not Richie.
2: Yeah, and, and it just seems like they, t- everybody else in the band talks about this record with such reverence, and yeah, he's kind of almost indifferent to it.
0: But now, but this minstrel music that I make with my wife, Candace Knight, who's 30 years younger than me, that's the good stuff, right? Yeah, I, I, judging by your crowds, it's not. <laughs> No offense. Candice, you're, you're beautiful and you're very talented. And I would have probably latched on to Richie Star if I were you, too. But yeah, it's not the same. Deep Purple has a majesty about them, and it's not all about Richie Blackmore. He got a lot of right. press as a guitar god, and that riff on Smoke on the Water is legendary. There's no doubt about it. Okay, but he wasn't the only talent in the band. He just wasn't
2: right. And and to think that you know all the stars lined up on this one to have this band the to lineup together, the hotel you know where they had to live in less than ideal conditions, and to have Martin Birch producing the whole thing. Yeah, all the planets lined up to to give us this record that cemented them as far as where they were going to move forward and not yeah just it, it, it was not the same thing as as Black Sabbath, it was not the same thing as Led Zeppelin, but it was it was like they established their place in rock history, kind of doing their own thing yes. on this record.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But it wouldn't last too much longer. I mean there's there's another couple, you know, with with these guys and then Ian Gillen and Roger Lee. They, they do a couple records with David Coverdale and Glenn Hughes. And then he was out and he eventually made Rainbow, which you know the first record was called Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, just so there's no, you
2: know, <laughs> there's no misunderstanding. Of like,
0: who's in charge of this, you know, and, and, and who's leading the way? And the fact of the matter is, I mean, I think because Ronnie James Dio had opened, uh, I think, for Purple uh, in a band called Elf. And he basically took Elf minus their guitar player for the first Rainbow album. And then over the next few years, he replaced them with better people, except for except for Ronnie, because there really is no better rock heavy, hard rock vocalist than Ronnie. But they made those those three records with Ronnie, and it was Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. And I hold those records in high esteem. Cause although they had different players, by the time you got to the end of Ronnie James's run there, there was some still there's that great interplay between the keyboard and the guitar was back. So he had a signature sound, he just wanted it all to himself. <clears throat>
2: yeah. And maybe that was maybe that was always the deal, was that he wanted to establish himself as the leader of the band. But I don't think I don't think that would have worked. The other thing I wonder too, is that, you know, they talked about making this record like purposely going somewhere to make this record and not, you know, tour record, tour record. I wonder if, if a lot of these bands could have gone on longer, had they been given any kind of break. But I think the the business model back then is that if you, if you're not on tour or making a record, you're just going to die. Like people will just forget about you, you know, God forbid you take six months or a year off but I think, you know, at, at some point in time, they just get burned out.
0: Well, yeah, a- absolutely. No, and and the, they treated them like this is, you know, pop music comes and goes so quickly mm-hmm. that if you've got a great band in 1971, you better make four albums between now and the start of 1974, right? Because if, if you don't, you'll just be gone. No one's going to remember you. And you got to get out there and tour, which it's, it's just amazing back then. Touring was so cheap, like a ticket would be like a buck or a pound or something like that. Whereas you know they really made a lot of money off the publishing and the records, and now it's the complete opposite. You know, you you'll go pay two hundred bucks to see Deep Purple in concert, but you can get their records for free. You know, or you know, like me, they had this amazing box set Jackson that I got on Amazon, and I think it was like fifty bucks, and it was basically everything they did in the seventies. You know, all the lineups, it was 10 records, 10 CDs in a nice little box that had pictures of all the records on there for like maybe 40, but I think it was like 50 bucks. I'm like, this is unbelievable. If I had bought all these in 1988, when I would first started collecting CDs, they all would have cost me $15, which would have been $150 back then, which is like $400 today. But instead, you know, we get them in a nice package, most of them remastered brand new on CD and that's when I started to really listen through all of Deep Purple because suddenly I had them all and uh, and they were in good shape and I'm like this is great you know they and the other thing about America is you know they they kind of overdo it they tend to overdo it on the hits so yes I know highway star yes I know smoke on the water yes I know space truckin no I don't know so many other songs that are <clears throat> so good you know the American rock radio can ruin absolutely ruin a band to the unengaged listener or the casual listener is like, eh, they only got three songs and I'm sick of two of them, right?
2: Right. Right. And that that is a yes. That is a problem with how we do it over here. Cause yeah, we want we, we I mean it's it's McDonald's. You want the you want fast, you want big, you want loud, and you want it a million times until you're burned out on it. But yeah, I mean even that the one you were talking about before, you got it for 50 bucks. That was probably three or four hundred dollars when it came out right. I'm sure a ten disc set, but yeah, you you let it sit around for a while and all of a sudden you could pick it up pretty cheap. So yeah, the, the days of making money off selling records are long
0: gone, unfortunately. Well they say the CD is coming back. We we know that vinyl has had a huge revival and I remember I was buying vinyl mostly just as a collector, not even to listen to it, but just to have it in my collection in the early 2000s and you could get stuff for a buck, you know, 2 bucks, you know, classic stuff. And now, you know, it's that's where the small fortune. They're like, "Well, the CDs back. Like to me it never really went away. But I continued to buy. I mean, in the last 20 years, it's been awesome to be a CD collector because they have discounted the prices so much. And they put yeah. together so many packages of like, "Oh, you want Rick Wakeman's first five solo albums? Okay, here's all five of them. Give me 12 bucks, we'll call it even." Like Really? Because one of them should probably cost that, right? So they've done all these packages to kind of continue to sell product. I got a feeling that in the next few years, prices on stuff like that is going to start to go up, which will make it harder on collectors like me. So I'm just glad that I collected as many as I did, as long as I did. And having that Deep Purple collection, yeah, that, that's a nice one to have.
2: And I think, too, part of the problem was that they, if you bounce around from different record labels, too, they they will put pa- different packages together right. like, wait I, I thought you already had to say, oh no this is you know this is something different because we had the rights to these two records and okay that's confusing
0: yeah. Definitely. So uh, eventually, I think people have found like, hey, so what if we we're on four different labels? It's all Deep Purple. You know, yes, I know we had different singers. And yes, that means different royalties go to different people for different mm-hmm. whatever. It's hard to work out, but it's worth it if we can get it all in a package that people will buy. So right. Uh, hopefully we continue to see more of that. And hopefully I get to see Deep Purple here. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, Jackson, but we'll see. Fingers if so, crossed. Yeah. If yeah. so, we'll talk about it here on the show. Excellent. That's me and Jackson's take on the classic Deep Purple album Machine Head, turning 50 years old, if you can believe it. Of course, being not quite 50 years old ourselves, there is no world without Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water or Highway Star or Space Trucking. Big staple on classic rock radio in America, and we probably underappreciated them when we were younger because we were just into other bands like the Stones, like Led Zeppelin, like Black Sabbath. But I think for a lot of people, especially a lot of people in the UK and Europe, they deserve to be up in the upper echelon especially of hard rock and heavy metal bands certainly they've earned it hopefully i get to go see them later this year in the o2 we'll see how all that shakes out so as usual folks hey did we get something right did we get something wrong did we miss the point did we leave out your favorite part you've got to let us know we're on several different forms of social media but number one is twitter where you can tweet us or dm us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72 Please be sure to subscribe and download anywhere you get your podcast, be it Good Pods, Apple, Amazon, Google Play. And if you're thinking about it, if you're enjoying the show, please go out and write us a positive review. If you send it to us, we get wind of it. We might just read it here on the show. Now next week, I can't even tell you what's going on next week. I've got an idea, but we have so much going on here, it's great. Ever since we joined the Pantheon Podcast Network, we've had all sorts of great opportunities. We're getting excited about a lot of the things that we have coming up here on the show, and I'm not exactly sure when we're going to release all of them or not. I do know that our boy Keith Richards, who I'm going to go see in Hyde Park this summer with his boys, the Rolling Stones, he's got an anniversary of an album that was very important to me in Jackson. That's main offender his second solo album which is celebrating its 30th anniversary right on the heels of machine head's 50th anniversary so that one might just be coming next week we might have some bonus stuff thrown in i don't even know yet i can't even tell you guess you're gonna have to tune in but you can subscribe anywhere you want and you can check us out at pantheonpodcast.com until next week all you rock and rollers all around the world be cool and stay safe